hello and welcome to episode 121, 121 of the Right for Your Life podcast. I'm Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And this week's episode is brought to you by some writing and reading and publishing related stuff. Um, we're going to talk about characters. That's one, yeah. of, that's one of the things we're going to be covering because we had a, a listener's question, two listener's questions really. We had one listener's question and then another listener saw the first listener's listener's question and decided that they would add their own listener's question to the original listener's question. Oh, brilliant. Um, so uh, it's it's uh, two or three questions in one and it's all about uh, characters and um, and process for creating them and and uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, we're going to talk about that and we're also going to go back to what we didn't finish last week which was 10 things that will make an editor stop reading your manuscript we got through uh, I think three or maybe four of those so we're going to go back and look at some of the other ones because it's a great post by um, Elizabeth Law and um, and uh, but first before all that what's in the news <laughs> in my own personal news that I think is news or the real news well, your news is real news. What? Well, yeah, this week I um, a few things have happened. Um, just to update everybody on, on the important things in my life. On Monday I was cutting a pepper, also known as a capsicum in some parts of the world. Uh, and I just kept going through the pepper and into my thumb and I kept on going quite, quite away, quite far down into my thumb and... Um, Went to hospital unnecessarily because I just spent three hours waiting in the um, casualty there to be seen just to find out whether I needed stitches or not. Um, and then I went home without actually finding out. And I'm just finding out now, really, naturally, whether I need them or not. And the answer, I think, is no. Um, are you but, Are you bleeding? No, but I was. <laughs> I was. What I did want to mention was that it felt a lot like cutting sashimi. I just wanted to leave that image with everybody there. And um, and also just to say that I'm, it's, it's healing very nicely. And isn't the body an amazing thing? Next week, more finger facts from <laughs> Ian and Donna. It's a thumb. Anyway, um, in terms of writing, I wanted to briefly mention something because I'm not sure... Um, how many poets we have listening, people that are submitting to poetry journals on a regular basis. But um, I found in my um, my own process of doing it that I get potentially a little bit too involved in um, trying to anticipate what's going to happen. Um, and a few weeks back, I mentioned that I'd made a submission to a poetry journal that I'd been rejected from a few times. Um, I could actually say now that I have a very good healthy record of rejection with this poetry journal. Um, but I did a submission um, actually nearly two months ago now. And the reason I wanted to mention it was because I obviously keep a track of when I submit to which journal, which poems are going where, and when I get a yes or a no. So I can see the time that, that goes between um, the submission and hearing back from them. And I can see that with this poetry journal, on every other time that I've submitted, I've been rejected within two weeks. And because it's nearly two months now since I've heard anything from them, I've started to like wonder, hmm, what's going on here? Is it because they are considering my poems 
more in more um, well more seriously because I have I had experience with a couple of journals that had my poems for ages and I didn't hear anything from them and then they were yeses so this is a dangerous game to be playing I think Ian have you ever um done this kind of thing with submissions have you sent submissions like this off to journals literary journals before um a, a couple of times and um I, yeah, a couple of times, but I, I definitely had that experience when I was submitting my manuscript to agents, um, and we we sort of touched on this a few weeks ago. But I, I had, I had, um, I had agents that just didn't get back to me at all, um, and I had agents that didn't get back for six months, something like that, and then they mm. would, and then they would reject me. Yeah, um, and. Well, in in the end, the the agency that I ended, I ended up with, uh, uh, Tibor Jones, was um, they got back to me within within days. Yeah, and I don't know but if it's, that. It's funny because I think with the kind of like the other way around a little bit with these journals because you know that there's a deadline for when the actual journal's going to come out. In this case, I know it's in November, um, and. I know that when they get the emails in after a deadline, then the ones that they don't want, those are the first ones that they're saying no to. But you see, because the editors change every month that they invite new editors, it could just be that this editor is taking ages to get back to people to say no. So that's why I think that it's a bit silly that I'm sitting there and trying to double guess. Is that even a word? Yes, I mean, no, but um, we know what you mean. (laughs) What, what, What was I trying to say? Yeah, to to double guess. Oh my god, I can't even speak English anymore. Second guess, thank you. To second guess, what's going on there? Um, and I just need to maybe just forget about it entirely until I hear back. I think so. There's nothing you can do about it, and it's one of the most frustrating things in the world is having having your manuscript or your poem or whatever it might be on submission because you feel like you want to know immediately. Of course, you do. It's um, whether it's yes or no. You want to. You want that. You know, immediate feedback. But that's not the way it works, unfortunately. And and the truth is, there isn't anything that you can do in this position at all. You just have to sit and wait and hope that it's a positive outcome. But use this time in between whilst you're waiting to uh, do something productive. That was always, always the challenge. Absolutely. But for me, I also, another reason why a poet might want to know quickly is because they want to be able obviously to submit those poems elsewhere and there are you know deadlines happening left right and center and it's trying to work out which poems are going where is is quite you know it's it's quite tricky in the first place and yeah it's just frustrating but anyway probably will be a no because it has as I said been a no on many occasions with this journal but still it's very interesting and I will keep everybody updated I've also been, uh, I was doing some waiting at the start of this week. Um, I was hoping that my second novel was going to be on the Man Booker Prize uh, long list, which was announced this week. Oh, great, the book that you haven't written yet. Well, yes, well, that's uh, funny you should say that, because five of the books that are on the Man Booker Prize long list um, haven't been published yet, so I didn't see why I shouldn't be. What? Is that is that really the case? Yes. Is that always the case? Well, I'm not sure. I've not read up on it enough, and I perhaps should have done before I started talking about it. But um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know if it's the case or not. There is a minor hoo-ha about it on the internet, as far as I can tell. Um, um, but I suspect it probably has been the case before. 
But there is extra controversy this year anyway because it's the first year that the Booker Prize has accepted submissions from writers um, oh, yeah. who are based in the US or, or, or not in the Commonwealth. Is that right? I'm not sure. It's, it's just US of A, isn't it? I don't know, actually. That I read that and then I was like, oh, is it uh, writers outside the Commonwealth or have they just let American writers submit? I think it, I, I'm not sure. Basically, US writers can... can uh, uh, um, uh, win the award for the first time, so there's this it's a significant year anyway, but I just thought it was really Sorry. interesting um you know we've been talking about Amazon and the difficulty of of independent bookshops and booksellers and um of course, when booksellers you know they really look forward to award season when long lists and short lists are announced because that's mm. when there is high profile um around the awards and so readers go out and they buy these specific books you know for for shops it's a real um you know it's a real good time and out of the 12 on the long list five of them aren't available <laughs> so that seems crazy i mean it's, it's how seems... far off are they being available i mean are we talking the well, next few months well they, they have to be if they're going to win the next few days they're up for the 2014 book a prize so you would think that they're going to be out fairly soon but you know this this week today yesterday when it was you know when it's been announced then people are going to go out and they're going to buy books that are long listed because when the shortlist comes along they want to know whether their book that they liked was in it or not and we can't go and buy five of them and so it just once again seems to me like (sighs) the industry just sort of shooting itself in the foot (laughs) but maybe amazon's in on this god damn it because you can probably pre-order those books on amazon I'll, I'll bet you can. Yeah. Have um, you read any of the books on the long list? Do you know what? I haven't. I haven't. Do you have the long list available? Um, it's right in front of me now. <laughs> would you like some notable inclusions? I would love some notable How, ones. Howard Jacobson's, who won with the Finkler question a few years ago. Uh, his unpublished novel, what? Jay, is on there. What? David what did he say it was called? Howard Jacobson. He didn't write the Finkler question, did he? Hang on one second. Well, one of us is going to be embarrassed. <laughs> Who's it going to be? Can- it's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so weird. Can I? I have actually read that book. What? I'm not. That's you. That's insane. It's insane, but I really didn't enjoy it. So maybe that's why I've just tried to scrub his name out of my memory. <laughs> no, I, I just, I was maybe 30 years too young for that book. But anyway, carry on. David Mitchell, author of Cloud Atlas and various others. With Indeed, his... who did this, uh, did you read what he was doing on Twitter? I, I saw something about it, but I, 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 don't, I don't know the full details. He basically, before this book, what's the name of this book, sorry? Uh, the Bone Clocks. Bone clocks. Uh, before it, he it came out, he um, he uh, set up a Twitter account so that he could um, release a book only on Twitter. So through tweets, right? Like it was over a few days. I can't remember how many days it was. There you go. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the Ali Smith, who's one of my favourite writers. Do you know it's strange, Ali Smith? Uh, she's, she's accidental, pre- wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, various others uh, I've got one right in front of me here somewhere I th- no I haven't got one right in front of me here um, Ali Smith really good and then we've got um, 
We're All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler, who people who I know and respect and like are saying good things about. And then David Nichols, whose novel Us is on there, He of One Day and Start of a Ten, a more of a popular popular kind of fiction type writer as opposed to a kind of a serious literary writer. So that's an interesting choice too. Mm-hmm. Um, Six Britons, two Irish writers, <laughs> and one Australian writer, four Americans. There you go. Interesting. Yeah. Um, did you get round to reading the Luminaries that won last year's uh, booker? No, of course not. It's 900 pages long. <laughs> We've got some booking catching up to do. I've got an awful lot of catching up to do, but this is not the time to do it. So let's move on and talk about something... Uh, uh, far more interesting. The Fifty Shades of Grey trailer came out today, and there is uproar. See, that's interesting that you think that that is more interesting. Well, it's not more interesting. Why? Why? What is What's in- going on with it? What's the uproar about? What is interesting is that you didn't realise that it was uh, the the grey in the title refers to a person. Yeah, I have managed to a hundred percent avoid those books and anything to do with them. I mean, I think the the closest I've got to them is seeing a few in the airport. Yeah, perfect airport and fodder. It's it's not intentional. It's just that they might. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think. <laughs> I guess now it's going to be difficult to avoid uh, seeing them, seeing as the films come out and it's going to be all around us, isn't it? All the the publicity for it. But but yeah, no, I didn't realise that Grey was a persona, a personage. A dirty man. Uh, he's very much a dirty man, excuse me. <laughs> <coughs> yes, um, so the, the trailer's out and um, it's, uh, it's you know, it's causing uproar. But, you know, lots of people are going to go out and buy books. Some of the p- people are complaining about just the fact that it's Fifty Shades of Grey, um, but also just uh, about that it's maybe slightly sexist and other people are kind of criticising other people for actually being interested in the book and, you know, quite excited about the film. So there's an argument circulating about, oh, this is bad writing why should why do people read this and then other people are saying hey come on at least people are reading it a bit like they did with twilight a few years ago yeah um did people complain that the book was sexist i think it's i've not read this but there's definitely some complaints of kind of misogyny and uh and uh horrible dirty filth (laughs) great Alrighty then. As far um, as as far as I know, it's fairly standard erotic fiction fare. I think, and not, that's not meant yeah. as a negative thing. I just don't know. I don't. I, I never quite understood why, apart from the Twilight connections, because it was fan fiction originally. Um, I never quite understood. Maybe I should read it and find out. Never quite understood why this particular um, erotic trilogy became one of the best, if not the best selling book of all time, and why all those thousands of other erotic uh, novels. Um, haven't have you have you ever ever read a, an erotic novel? Uh, I mean, I mean, I I mean like a, a fully a fully kind of dyed in the wool erotic novel. Well, I mean, Julie Cooper must c- come under fall under that. I, no, I remember no, no, reading no, no, one. No. Really? How how with being very don't want me. <laughs> with be, without being, being graphic, <laughs> being aware of the ex- non-explicit tag that comes with this podcast. Mm-hmm. What's you know how filthy does how dirty, filthy, horrible does Jilly Cooper get? Not that bad, surely. I'm sure hoo-hoos and cha-chas were mentioned. Well. And 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 doing things with them. Did I get round the explicit tag? 
I think you did, but all of the all of the responses I have are just awful. So um, I can't. I don't know. I don't think we can talk about this without without no. being rude. Let's just say that when I was um, uh, a young teenager, I read um, Judy Bloom as many teenagers do. That was pretty explicit. Some of those. But for many for many young teenagers, that's how they they come to realise that one can be explicit with cha chas and hoo hoos. By the way, Charles Charles and Hoo-Hoo's is a South Park term, not my own. Um, but yeah, no, so I would say no. And there must be millions of them out there. But who knows? Well, there are. not to question why. I've, I, 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 um, yeah, I, I read a couple at university. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Well, I, I would, Did you? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Dark days. <laughs> Indeed. You had that much time on your hands that you could do that. Literally. Read the books, yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was just interested. I was, I was a member of a book club, and they kept sending me books, and they sent me one of those, and I thought, well, um, well, let's have a read. And um, I didn't get very far into it, but um, I was going to say, I thought you were going to say I read it in twenty minutes or something. Yeah, I know there are lots of jokes here. I hope everyone's sort of filling in their own jokes as they go along in this particular <laughs> section of the episode. Um, anyway, the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer is out, and it's uh, it's it's news. <laughs> well, thank you for updating us all. Is it time for the um, the you know what? The listeners' question. Listeners' question. Uh, yes, it is. It Great. is time. And uh, the listeners' question this week, as I mentioned at the start, is about characters. And this will probably actually just be the topic for the show because um, you know there's a fair bit to say about characters, but specifically uh, Jack Lingard on Twitter at Lingard Jack, which is confusing. Um, says, what's your process when creating a character? And um, before I come on to that, that was quickly followed by M.I. Milliman, whose uh, Twitter handle is at Milliman, because they can't have the dots in the M and the I. So, well, M.I. Milliman, just without the dots. M.I. Milliman, that's great. He says, going off Jack's uh, listener's question how do you go about giving each character their own voice and how do you keep track mm. so there's some interesting questions now you've stated mm. publicly by which I mean privately to me that um, that uh, this is a tricky one for you to answer what with being a poet and all so what do you not have characters in poems then or something um, I do but not not ones that speak dialogue I mean they have I have obviously had not obviously at all I don't know why I said that but I have had people in poems kind of speaking out internal monologues if you get what I mean but I've, I've never developed characters in that way I have people moving and doing things in my poems I wouldn't call it the same kind of thing as building up like a, you know proper character um but what about was, when what about when you were writing your children's fiction well, yeah, I mean, there, then, as I said, I got, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I got into, I'd say, probably the first, second chapter and presented it to a, to a writing group. And they were like, what? <laughs> Who's talking here? Why would a dad say that? And then I was like, whoop. And actually, when we go back to 10 things that will make um, an editor put down your manuscript, that was pretty much uh, something I nailed there, not really nailing the character. So I would say I'm not an expert at it and it's something which I um I said okay that's what I need to look at um 
But I would just quickly like to add here that I was contacted this week over Twitter, a very nice uh, tweet uh, from somebody who I know uh, through somebody, a friend of mine. Um, and um, they just call themselves online at Billy Jean. And I'm just going to call them that without revealing their real name because maybe they don't reveal their real name. Um, and they they told me, Billy Jean said, that um, that she enjoyed the podcast. Hello, by the way. And that um, she got an agent this week, which is fantastic. So did, did she say that she got an, an agent almost entirely because of listening to the fantastic <laughs> advice delivered by this podcast? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was coincidental, <clears throat> seeing as we were just talking about agents and she just got her agent this week. Um, <laughs> but what is interesting is that um, she has been blogging a lot over the last uh, few years. And when I just popped in to look at the blog, um, she was writing about the fact that she got her agent and... Um, and how exciting it was that the characters that she had entirely conceived on one night in November, or made up entirely on a night in November, that they would be coming to life. I thought that was really interesting that um, that she she yeah had what, what's the word had brought these characters forth from her mind in one night, and they will potentially now be in a novel. Well, this is because being a, a writer, as everyone knows, can be quite a a solitary process and you do spend an awful lot of time with these people in your head and you think about them an awful lot which is kind of what I'm going to come on to um, and then the idea that other people kind of know who they are is quite a, an odd sensation at first it takes a bit of getting used to that people I mean I still get surprised when people say that you know comment on the book and talk about oh when this or that happened or when that character this or that or, or you know that kind of thing I still find it quite quite startling I kind of think oh yeah I forgot about that <laughs> it's um yeah, yeah it is it's, it is an unusual thing but presumably if you are if you're going to do like a splurge <laughs> of writing where you are intensively writing over a short period this this whole idea of maintaining a character's voice and and all that must be so much easier because you can just completely inhabit that 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 person or that space whereas if you are writing your novel over many years and dipping in and out of it presumably it's a lot harder yeah i guess so uh, but but that is what you what you ultimately do no one has ever written a novel without concentrating very hard on it for quite some time even those people who are kind of um who've got you know two sandwiches short of a picnic who write novels in four or five weeks or even less even those people, they, you know, just the physical act of writing those words down, you have to have spent quite a lot of time, um, even if it's condensed, working working on and thinking about um, the same characters. And and ultimately, it's a bit like the whole, the whole uh, like in sport, if you, the theory is if you do 10,000 10, hours of practice at any, any sport, then you'll probably be quite good at it. Um, if you If you spend, and I won't do it, try and do the maths, but an awful lot of time many many hours um writing something then you will you will inhabit it like you say and you and you do get to to know those characters and the most important thing is it's not necessarily or maybe i'm speaking for myself but the voice of a character um um is quite easy to do because it happens naturally what's difficult is to make sure that it's consistent um, and that and that a character behaves in a way that you might expect throughout. That's particularly difficult because at some point during any kind of piece of writing, a character something happens to a character and their behaviour 
has to change because that's the whole point. That's the conflict, as we talked about last week. Um, mm. But the, the 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 key thing is to try and stay within within the realms of um, even if not in the the realms of sort of plausibility in the real world, in the world that you've created in the book, it's within within that realm of plausibility. Those characters need to stay consistent. They need to do things which are true to the book, or true to the story, or true to the characters around them, um, and that's probably the the biggest the biggest challenge, I think. Yeah, I imagine some writers throughout history, maybe lots of them, have um, have actually physically drawn their characters out. Don't you think? Well, this happens. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it happens all the time now, especially with tools like Scrivener, which have got entire sort of sections of the software dedicated to um building characters and you know i've i've been do, trying to do that um with uh with the novel i'm working on i i, I do have a couple of character profiles um but, but I, i'm trying to use, i'm using it for details i just want to remember details so the well, the question that jack asked was uh, what's your prospect what's your process when creating a character i think previously i don't know if i've really had a process it's been quite quite a natural thing whereas now um and maybe this is because i'm dipping in and out of the work much more um i'm trying to just keep track of things that they say things um as in things that they say quite often you know phrases that they would regularly come out with um, or or unlikely to say or you know simple things like hair color or or um or or who they who they're in love with or something like that so key facts about the character as opposed to saying um, this is Steve. In, in twenty years ago, he was married to Dawn, and that didn't go well. And um, they fell out on a cable car, and the rest is history. You know, it's not kind of a deep background to the character; more just like little details that I need to remember in the future. Um, that kind of thing. So that's and Scrivener is great for that kind of thing. If you're not using Scrivener to write long fiction, then I suggest perhaps you ought to check it out. Um, so so that's kind of the process at the moment but ultimately I just let it percolate in my head for a while and um and a bit like you do with a poem I guess your your characters mm. aren't separate from your book or the story they are ultimately part of it so in creating the story the characters are kind of part of it I don't think of them separately almost if if that makes sense mm, yeah absolutely uh, when you were talking about scrivener you were just talking about that it's a tool to draw up a character but in writing, not actually in pictures. Oh, you can probably import that, images, I would have thought. That's what I meant, like whether people oh. have actually sat and sketched them out is what I meant. I so that they, they're physically looking at them, for example, pinned up on the wall when they're, when they're writing. I would have thought so. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if lots of people did that. Um, let us know if you do, folks, on Twitter. Um, well, at the moment, I'm actually reading Swallows in Amazons, you know, the classic oh, yeah. uh, by Arthur Ranson. And he did all the little um, uh, sort of pencil or ink drawings, or whatever, himself. And um, and I wonder whether he did that as he went along for each chapter, because they're kind of like dotted throughout just to help him you know, get a sense of what was going on. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and I, 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 um, I've sketched maps before. So that's a technique that people might use if you've got a setting and um, and it's a bit hard to keep track of them. So for my first novel, it was set on a street and different people lived in different numbers. I just ended up right drawing a map of the street. Um, that can be really helpful. Yeah, I totally imagine it. If or when, I should say, I write my novel, um, I'll be doing lots of that kind of drawing stuff. I like that. 
yeah, it, it's uh, it, it just makes sense. It just seems like a, a very fairly um, obvious thing to do. The mm. other thing, the other thing about creating a character. So, what's your again to go back to the question? What's what's uh, your process when creating a character? Sometimes characters just appear out of nowhere, and sometimes they appear out of nowhere because you just need someone to move the story forward. For example, um, maybe maybe my main character, who's well established, maybe they need to go to the doctors. I don't know. I now need to write a doctor into this character, into this uh, into this novel or into this script or something. So, and those incidental characters are the ones that I've always found really interesting, um, um, and. And and I think there's a misconception is perhaps putting it a bit far, uh, it's perhaps going a bit far. But I think some people think that every single character that you create in a book has to include include including the main character really that they their, that their entire lives and backstory have to be wrapped up and complete and 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 finished and easy to understand. Whereas that's not uh, to me that's not how life works. We, like we don't know anyone fully. And I mean anyone, your mm. your husband, wife, mum, dad, children, you never know anyone fully. And, you know, let's get philosophical and say we never fully know ourselves. But the, in mm. real life, you never fully understand anyone because that's just not how human beings work. And you never know everything about anyone. I'm fascinated with this thing. I'm sure I've talked about it before. And it's 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 this idea that you, the people that you love most in your life, again, same people, parents, and wife, husband, you you only know them from when you met them. You can never go back and see that person grow up, and yet they're the person you love and 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 means the most to you in the world. And I guess the great exception to that is your children, because they're the only people I guess that are in that uh, uh, position for you. But anyway, only at the start, yeah. But then, yeah, I can totally see that. And I was just imagining that when you see something on film, like if you see a book made into a film or just a film or anything on the screen, we're constantly told who is important to the story by the way that they do the camera. And also things that are important to the plot, like the camera is going to like linger on, on, a bo- on a lunchbox over in the corner. Then you know that something's going to happen with that lunchbox. And I feel like it's the same with characters. You know, you, you know instantaneously if somebody is, is vital, a vital character to the plot because of how they are presented on camera. Whereas with a book, that's what I love is that it's kind of like a more even playing field. People come in and they go out and you don't know whether you're going to see them again do you know what I mean? Like you don't. Not everybody in a story has to be vital to the plot, like you said with your doctor. You know. Uh, absolutely, and I had in in, uh, and I'm sorry, I keep using. I need to think of better examples, but um, I had a character called Benny, the guy who paints pictures with his eyes closed, and um, I often get asked about about him and say, "Well, what you know? What I'd love to know more about what happened with him um, and Angelica, and um, and." And I kind of, I don't have any answers. I don't really know what happened with them. Something seemed to happen. And obviously, Benny's kind of an interesting character. But, you know, my lead, the, it's, I guess it's first person. A first person is actually slightly different because you don't get the chance to describe everyone and everything that happens to everyone because you can only see through um, through uh, one person's eyes, through one character's eyes. Um, and do you think that's easier or more difficult? Well, most people say it's easy, don't they? It's um, it's you know Martin Amis and or whoever it was, 
saying that first person is uh, not real writing or whatever, some ridiculous quotes, that it's much easier to write first person. I say it's more difficult. I'll give you another example from my book. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but I think this is an interesting one because I think it's, you know, I'll use this as an example, but I'm sure that there are lots of people writing books where they have similar problems. Um, and that's characters who are important but don't necessarily appear... Um, in the novel as as such so the example the example in mine is is um the lead character's wife who's ill had her second stroke is in bed asleep upstairs you know she is bed bound the entire novel and she says nothing the entire novel certainly not verbally and how and and so the challenge is how on earth do i give her that character a voice when she literally has none um, and and I'm sure there are other examples that you know you might have um, uh, a character who is um, uh, just referred to kind of off screen, um, you know someone like uh, Tarantino's films, loads of people refer to and you hardly ever see them. Um, mm. And uh, Marcellus Wallace, I mean he does appear in in Pulp Fiction, um, uh, but very few lines of dialogue. But the character Marcellus Wallace is the one of the key points of Pulp Fiction drives the entire story or various stories um, so it's it's how you, a character's voice doesn't always come through the character itself, it comes from the other characters and how they talk about and, and interact with each other when referring to that other character and that can be um, a, a real challenge and the other trick of course is backstory um, and, and of course Pulp Fiction and, the, and this is not a book but it's a, it's a good example of you know the whole thing is kind of one weird backstory or several backstories all mixed up um, and so you say well that's okay if, if you have a bedbound character that says nothing you can say well we'll just put some backstory in and of course that, that's what I did so you, get, you find out more about Georgina and her relationship with uh, Gordon the main character before she ended up unable to speak um, um, in the things that happened to them in, in, in the past but then the, the trick is well that's that's an entire past that's like I've just said about how we are in real life we don't fully know everyone so if I'm going to handpick a few moments to try and get this person across this character across which ones and that's a, that's a, a huge challenge so um, and, and, and that's a huge challenge that comes uh, I think a lot with first person for the reasons I've just said you only have one it's kind of backstory through through someone's like two lenses almost in front yeah. of each other um, so it's tricky but I don't know if you noticed I am starting to slightly lose my voice I was just going to say Sam like you're a bit like you've got a coldy pops I, I, don't, I don't know if I've um, got hay fever or if I've uh, got something on its way but I've just said it I just, I, I'm waking up a little mucusy well I would be surprised if it's hay fever at the moment I think it's far along in the season I don't typically suffer from hay fever either, but I feel kind of well in myself apart from being tired. Well, but you're going to have to get yourself a, a hot milk and honey tonight. I'm going to. So I apologise, you know, for the rest of this recording, which is, you know, it's definitely not long enough to talk about all those points we want to talk about. But um, yeah, I uh, a bit croaky. Um, hmm. Have we answered all of these questions? Let me go to them again. <laughs> What's, what's your process when creating characters? Sort of talks about that. How do you go about giving each character their own voice? Sort of, how do you keep track? Hmm. I don't know. We sort of, have we talked about that? Yeah. I mean, you said that it was quite a natural process. It's not like you sit down and you... Or, or you Scrivener. That's what you said as well. 
you scrivener one of the thing that i did keep track of again this is to go back to my post-it note system that i've talked about and never explained in detail because i'm waiting for a lucrative ebook offer um, um i keep track of who said what and when so part of my post-it note system was to include characters and and so who's involved in a particular chapter um but uh, that's how I keep track of that. But I don't keep track of voices because, as I said right at the start, it's it, I've always I think it's anyone who's writing something um, uh, in any kind of depth, it's it becomes ingrained. You just know. And uh, as soon as you finished it and you read through something, you're going to know if if there's you know you're lacking consistency in a voice, aren't you? I mean, you're going to know that yourself, presumably. Yes, it is one of the things that a good a good. Um, uh, beta reader that's what they call them these days never used to call them that um that's what a good beta reader will do if you give your work to someone to read that's the kind of feedback you would expect um to to get back from them if they're any good they will say something along the lines of you know this character does this here but then they do something completely wild and out of character later on so yes like a continuity um person that that must be an interesting job i imagine well, quite possibly. Yeah, cool. Well, I think we definitely answered those because I, I didn't really answer them, but then you did. So hooray. Well, that's good because you are going to go on to talk to me because I'm going to put mute on this microphone and cough my little socks off. Oh, um, cough your guts <laughs> out. I've already started. On, yeah. I've been holding that in. That one that came out then, I've been holding that in for about seven minutes. And it just <laughs> Great. Well, out. while you go and pop out a bigger one on mute... Um, I will just recap. Last week, we looked at um, a very interesting blog post from Elizabeth Law Reads. 10 things that make an editor stop reading your manuscript. Um, and both Ian and I thought, wow, these are some things that I've, yeah, that really hit home with us. So we started sharing and chatting about them. Number one was nothing at stake for the reader. Number two, the voice is too young or too old for the age of the kid you're writing about. Number three, trying to sound hip, street or ethnic if that's just not your thing. And that's as far as we got those three things. We had a little chat about them and agreed thoroughly that those are reasons why an editor's going to stop reading. So should we carry on from number four, Ian? Let's do it. Didacticism's heavy hand, it's called. Like Sounds important, doesn't it? Giant bronze glove. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth says this used to be the number one mistake children's book editors saw. And it's still very common. And I think this is really interesting. There's nothing wrong with teaching if that's the intent of your book. But let me be clear. In fiction, your job is to tell a story. So don't be overtly trying to teach through the book. It has to come organically from it. Um... I can totally relate to that, right? Read, uh, not reading, well, reading picture books, obviously, but writing picture books. You always feel, you know, you know that there's got to be this message in it. So um, they get so many where it's just so obvious that it's, it's, it's too in your face. I, I feel the same about overly written books as well, of which there are many, especially literary, literary books, literary fiction, where the story just seems entirely secondary to the writer's desire to show off <laughs> to prove a point yeah yeah i'm just trying to think of some examples in adult fiction where i've thought they're blatantly trying to say that something is right or wrong rather than letting us get there 
ourselves. I can't think of one, so that's good. That must be because they were manuscripts the editors didn't put down. Absolutely. I mean, something like 1984 is is interesting. I mean, I've not read all of 1984, which is slightly crazy. It's on my very high on my list of, come on, sort yourself out, go back and read that properly <laughs> list. Um, but of course, looking back now, in it's you know it, it's such a cultural icon of uh, in, in itself. Um, and we, we, we can only read it now. Uh, so, you know, this generation of readers can only read it through the eyes we have now, where we have CCTV and lots of the things that are alluded to in, in 1984. Um, yeah. But it, it, it has, it, it's not didactic, but it's, it manages to create a world that speaks, that speaks about the, the, the world that we live in without kind of being heavy-handed with its didacticism i think absolutely i think um clockwork orange another good example of not read it Uh, no um what's the other one i think catch 22 but i mean that's one of the world's great anti-war novels isn't it but it's i mean it does it in such an awesome way Mm. really awesome number five waiting for the story to start ah the four-page picnic syndrome. That editor, <laughs> that editor liked waiting for the story to start. <laughs> I didn't. Sorry, I'm just referring back to Ian McEwan's um, massively popular novel, Enduring Love, which was not massively popular with me. This person, this editor, Elizabeth, she says, I'll give it maybe 10 to 12 pages. Maybe. That sounds like quite a lot. I thought that sounded like quite a lot. But then this is an editor, this is not an agent. So an ag- so an editor will typically be getting this manuscript from an agent who's already sifted out all the rubbish and it's being sent to her because someone she trusts recommends it. Yeah, and, and this is where she references writers that kind of do flashbacks at the start already. So like, and then I lay there with one arm. But coming back to today while I'm walking down the street, do you know what I mean? Or like a flash forward as well. That, that that's a tool that a lot of people use in order to get into the story so you don't have to wait for it to happen but then be able to give yourself some space just to you know slowly work into it with some description and, and scene setting yes it's a classic it's a classic way of doing things i've done it myself yeah but i was the- thinking actually it's, it's quite difficult to read novels these days that don't do that yeah it's it is kind of well uh, you know it's it's tried and tested and, and and the reality is you can't start just in a boring way and you know why would you why would you want to but you do have to try and have some sort of impact up front and um and get people into the story quite quickly but this is this goes back to the old advice as well of of um knowing when to, knowing when to start so so the start that you think is the start when you start writing something might not be the start at all and then of mm. course there's the advice that you take a short story, take off the first paragraph, take off the last paragraph, and there, there you have a better short story. Um, so knowing when to come in is really, is a real, real challenge. Knowing when to, knowing when, when the story really starts is, is, is really quite tricky. Because, you, because you've got the world in your head. So, you know, like she says, uh, uh, like Elizabeth Law says in this piece, uh, you know, this idea of setting a situation and showing as a character, that's because you've got all that 
in your head as a writer and you're trying to you think well these people need to know this because i know this and it makes what happens later makes sense to me because i know all of this stuff so yeah. i need to tell i need to tell people this stuff because they won't understand what happens later unless they know all this stuff but that's, don't just poo it out on the page is that the that's the motto here <laughs> yeah well okay yes yes it is i think that sums it up uh yeah because she says that, that the converse is true that you don't have to grab us with too much at the beginning quite number six in historical fiction describing a lot of stuff your character wouldn't actually notice i think that this was this thing i was saying about with my little children's book that i started my 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 novel there that um the dad was maybe talking about things that that dad's not gonna bloody notice oh excuse me beep dad's not gonna notice that (laughs) i think we're okay with that (laughs) good as I said, again, if you could just bleep it out anyway, so I seem really hardcore, that would be great. <laughs> um, yes. So there, I mean, that, that that's, again, seems very logical, doesn't it? It does, and it's not just in historical fiction either. And again, this is very pertinent for first-person um, narrators, where if you're in a room and you, as an author, you want to really, you really want to kind of get the atmosphere of the room. Maybe the room is... Maybe there's a body in the room. Maybe there's a dead body in the room. In the corner of the room, slumped with blood trickling from the corner of its mouth. And maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's the atmosphere and, and everything is extremely intense. And that's what you want in your novel because this is a very intense part of your novel because there's a body in the corner of the room. Chances are the character that walks in, the first thing that they will spot is the body in the corner of the room. However, if you as an author have decided that in order to convey this this kind of feeling of intensity and and uh, and panic and horror that this character is about to feel, that you need to build it up in some way with perhaps a description of the, the awful photos on the other side of the room, on the wall of a kind of a scary person or a zombie or a vampire with a bicycle, then that's stuff that the person isn't going to see, the character's going to see. They're going to see the body and that's probably all you need to say. But it it does happen quite a lot when you when 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 you look at kind of um, uh, uh, first drafts and unpublished fiction, it's this pooing it out on the page. You're just going to think, well, I need to. I know that all this stuff is in the room because it's a scary room, and <laughs> I don't need to focus on the body. I need to make sure that the room is a scary room. But actually, yeah. the body will probably do the job. Totally. Number seven. In fantasy, sci-fi, paranormal or dystopian, making up convenient rules for your world that appear as the story progresses. This is a funny one. This reminded me of um, Friends Cups. Do you remember? Did you ever see that episode where um, Chandler made up a game called Cups to win money from Joey and he was just making up rules as he went along? I think I've seen that episode probably three times. (laughs) Most likely with my sister, who uh, every time I see her seems to be watching Friends. Um... Yes, there you go. I don't think I need to say more about that, do I? No, uh, again, it happens all the time, though. And it's what I said earlier on about characters and about consistency. You can't just have something happen out of nowhere and expect the reader and expect to get away with it. It's just not going to happen. And 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 this is the challenge of writing anything long: is that the longer a piece is the more difficult it is to make it all fit together and work as a as a whole thing so sometimes in order to move a story forward you do need to it feels like it's the easy way out making up a convenient rule but sometimes you just need to actually 
think about whether it's consistent or not. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my dad and I had a, a, a discussion about Moon, the film. Do you do you watch Moon? It was. Um, it had um, Sam Rockwell in it. Um. Yes, I did see Moon. Yeah. Yes, I liked it. I let I I suspended my disbelief. My dad did not, and it was exactly for that reason that he felt that there was too many rules being made up that were being broken or or, or remade. So uh, so don't do it, writers. Number eight, characters describing themselves by looking in the mirror or in other awkward self-reference. I like that one. (laughs) Um, None of your characters, I hope, Ian, um, describe themselves in mirrors. uh, Oh, I look really tired today. This top uh, doesn't match my trousers. (laughs) It's first person. That would be the worst way of describing what they look like, just saying that their top doesn't match their trousers. (laughs) Oh, it's to convey the fact that they're distracted. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had a first-person narrator, and they at no point does he describe what he looks like, or does anyone else come up to him and say, hey, nice moustache. It's like so, telephone calls, isn't it? Yes, I will make sure that I go to the shops. No, I didn't. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> I don't really need to carry on that example. <laughs> right, number nine. The One Joke Book. Now, here she's talking about picture books because this um, this list, I think, is specifically or it obviously can be interpreted as, as working for all types of books, but mainly for children's books. Um, and especially with picture books here, writing a one joke book where you just have to wait for that one twist or that one surprise, and that one punchline. Um, she says, readers, that's not a picture book text. That's a gag. Yeah. Have you read any books like that? Um, mm, I would say no. Um, I can think of one that I felt that way about. Lots of people didn't, and I believe it won awards and people liked it. But there was a book a few years ago called Me Cheetah, um, which was narrator. The, the narrator was the chimp. I think I think that's the right mammal. Uh, the chimp in um, uh, the Tarzan films. So the, the 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 book was you know it was supposed to I think it was his you know supposed to be his autobiography or something like that, and it was played you know completely deadpan, and it was you know the whole thing the wider joke was that it was like an allegory for the modern I've said that word twice now haven't I in the same podcast, mm. yeah. um, and not once in the previous one hundred and twenty podcasts I don't think, <laughs> um, I'll stick with it. Um, it I think it was kind of an allegory for Hollywood and all that kind of thing and uh, and what have you but. Uh, I just thought this is the same joke over and over, over and over again. Like I get the joke, I get, I, I get it. This is a talking monkey whose, whose, um, whose career has gone down the, uh, down the pan. <laughs> Sounds great. I can't wait to read it. Um, yes, it was good. Yeah, it, was, it was brilliantly written, and it, it was, it was really good in many ways. But I just thought it's the same. I just thought it was the same thing over and over. Well, I'm when I'm trying to think of ones. I I, th- I can think of lots of picture books where there is a, a, a surprise, but I haven't ever felt that any of them were gags. And oh, that's there's not really much to that book except for that. You know, when you open it up and it's like surprise. Um, but anyway, one to keep in mind. Number ten, we're nearly there. Nearly there. Now, number 10 is an interesting one for me because it references um, a story by 
Karen Blixen, or as they call her in Denmark, Karen Blixen. I take it that you know Karen Blixen. Uh, uh, yes, but I pronounce it Keron Blixen. <laughs> Blixen. Um, the writer of Out of Africa. Danish. That's why um, I'm, I'm interested. Her museum of where she grew up, actually, her, her she was, came from a very wealthy family. It's just down the road from me here where I am. It's a fantastic place to visit. Um, in number 10, Elizabeth Law says that she calls, well, she doesn't actually, she references somebody else, Nina Larden, calls certain stories Babette Feasts. And that means just two characters talking, no action, no conflict. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute. And I've, I've seen Babette's Feast, the film. It's the story written by Karen Blixen. Um, I haven't read the book. But was it just two characters talking, no action and no conflict? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think it was. It's a very, very famous film. I think it was Denmark's first ever Oscar-winning film. Um, so, yeah. So don't just have two characters talking with no action and no conflict was the short way to, to say that. Unless, of course, you're Beckett and you've written one of the greatest plays of all time, Waiting for Godot. Yeah. But then there is conflict because the conflict is, will Godot ever arrive? But maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is what we should say. OK, that is something which is specific to picture books. I'm trying to think about novels now where there's just two people talking. And I can't think of any either. There's always conflict. Well, Action. you you referenced last week. You you talked about um, Emma Donoghue's room, yeah, and and the first half of that is is um, is three characters, but main, mainly just two, um, and and what they get up to and, and their conversations. Is, you know, there are only for the first half of the book, there are only two characters really that appear in it with any with any kind of. There is the third character which who pops in every now and again for one reason or another. And um, so, yeah, and that that seemed to be quite popular. I'm not convinced about that one. I mean, the idea of the being, well, I am convinced. I think it's basically saying where uh, that you need conflicts and you need something to happen in your in your manuscript, which is true. I mean, that's a fact. You do there is you do need conflict, but what that conflict is, I think, can be really interesting. And of course, waiting for Godot again. It's a really good example. It's kind of it's the play where nothing happens, and and um, there are very few characters. Most of it is just two people talking to one another. But there's loads of conflict because we are all thinking, who is Godot and when is he going to arrive? <laughs> is that conflict? I think so. Of course it's conflict. It's, it's, it's suspense. It's what we're hanging on to. Conflict can be many things, but it's ultimately, it's ultimately what... Um, what keeps us watching and what we're interested in. Yeah, but I would in. say in that situation, conflict could only really be if they had an argument, fell out and sat at opposite ends of the bench and didn't talk to each other. It's been a while, a while since I've watched slash read it and I think that, I don't know, that might even happen. <laughs> and with that, we end our run-through of 10 reasons why um, an editor will stop reading a manuscript. And I think we can um, agree that we will avoid all of these things from now on. Definitely. I'm also going to avoid talking for the next, well, until tomorrow morning. I'm struggling here. I, don't, I, apolo- well. I apologize, everyone. It's, my, I am. There is a giant cough, just waiting permanently to come out, and I'm doing everything I can to suppress it. 
Oh, it sounds really, really uncomfortable. <laughs> very difficult. Fantastic. Well, thank you for holding it in. And um, thanks also for the podcast uh, this week with me. It's, well, it's a pleasure. You can find me on Twitter at The Flying Poet. Where are you on Twitter? Do you want me to say where you are? At Ian Broom. You can also find all our show notes for this episode at 5by5.tv slash WFYL slash 121. All of that is true. All of that is true. And um, is there anything else we need to say apart from goodbye? See you next week, everybody. We, well, perhaps we should just mention. We'll mention it next week. But um, we are going to have. We're going to. Will there be a show next week? And then we're going to have a week off on we, our jollies. Quite literally on holiday together. Yeah. With various other people too. Absolutely. We are going to relax. And right. Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we do, but hopefully. Yes, so, um, but we will see everybody next, or, 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 yes, we will be on the airwaves next week. <laughs> we will. This has been a very smooth ending to this show. <laughs> Great, thank you. See you, Ian. Farewell. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.